I want to finish up a little bit uh, from last week that I didn't get to in my notes of the uh, aspects of the new moon. And we're, really, we're going to look at, uh, because it is listed several times in Scripture, and there's several events that happen around it, before we uh, walk away from that and get into uh, some of the other uh, elements of times and seasons, we're going to be moving uh, in the weeks to come into the Hebraic calendar of events and uh, the uh, seven feasts. And we're going to be looking at each one of those of their spiritual significance, their timing in their season, and also their uh, manifestation in the ministry of Christ. That Has Christ fulfilled this? Is it something still future? Uh, is it still pointing to something in addition, or has it been filled with meaning in Christ and should do, and, and our whole development of our uh, of our worship patterns following the Hebraic calendar rather than our modern calendar of holidays? So we're going to be looking at that. But before we get into that, I want to finish up a little bit of the idea of the new moon. And I really want to talk about worship, and we talked about the Sabbath as a time of worship. And certainly we find by Jesus' time, by Paul's ministry, that every Sabbath the people of Israel would meet in, uh, they would meet in the synagogues and hear the word of the Lord, they would engage in that, and uh, we know at least from one event that the Gentiles who perhaps hadn't fully converted to Judaism, would listen outside of those synagogues and hear the Word of God read. And uh, then the teachings of those, they were called friends, and so they were uh, friendly towards the Jews. Uh, some were in the process of converting to Judaism. And it was those who heard Paul in the synagogue teach and said, please come and teach us also. They recognized they couldn't enter the synagogue, but that was every Sabbath. And, and that was that day of the week that was set aside. So we come to uh, the idea of Sabbath, and we understand it had a very important part in their worship. And, but we sometimes don't recognize the part of the new moon in that process as well. And we're going to look at a passage just to finish that off and to kind of review that, uh, that will show it in practice. And so let's go to... Let's go to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Let's go there. And you might say, well, 1 Samuel is kind of interesting. That's during the kings. I said, well, it's during Saul and David. And so that's our context of the time period we're talking about. This is the events around the period when, when it becomes evident that Saul wants to kill David. It has become known to Saul that David is going to be the new king of Israel he is trying to thwart the plan of God, that while God has anointed him king, Saul wants to destroy him. And so Saul and God are at odds with each other. And these are the events unfolding where really it becomes news to more public news. So far it's been pretty private. It's just between Saul and David. Uh, that's going to change in this chapter. And it begins by David talking to Saul, or to Saul's son, Jonathan, about it. And so we're going to find this. And so pick up with me in 1 Samuel 20. Uh, they're trying to set out a plan of how to prove David's rendition that, that the king is trying to kill him. And Jonathan says there's no way. And uh, let's pick up in verse 3. It says, Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon. And I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. 
Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you, into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And so this is the agreement. And notice the occasion. The occasion is the new moon. And at the new moon, it was expected that the family would be together. And at this junction, David is part of Solomon's family, correct? What I say? I'm sorry. David is part of Saul's family, all right, by marriage. And so his expectation was is that at the new moon, you're going to be at the table with the family. It is a special day. Of, of worship within the people of Israel. And it begins with this meal that is at sunset. And so you have a new moon meal. Now David says, uh, I'm not going to be there. Let's just see how King Saul responds. And let's come back the third day. Now why the third day? Well, because not only was David supposed to be there the first day, the new moon, he was also supposed to be there the next day. And so the new moon was a pretty substantial event. So let's look at it. And, and we'll find how, uh, and they set up this signal mechanism and, and we'll, of how to inform David that he should run instead of sticking around. But let's look at verse, jump down to verse 24. It says, Then David hid in the field when the new moon had come. The king sat down to eat the feast. So there's a feast of new moon. Okay. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. Which means that this is not just an ordinary meal. This is a very special feast that you are expected to be clean for. That means ceremonially clean, which means you couldn't have touched a, a dead body. You couldn't. Have, you know, there's a, all the listing of what ceremonial cleanliness is, is described there in Leviticus, Exodus, other portions. And so, if you were unclean, you were not to be a part of that, which tells us this is something spiritually significant. So we're not just talking about a timekeeping device. This is part of their worship, and you're not allowed to worship before the Lord in this in this feast setting in an unclean condition. And remember, this is a new moon. And so the seed is empty, and he says he must be unclean. Verse 27, and it happened on the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, Saul, David earnestly asked permission for me to go to Bethlehem. That was the lie they concocted. And he said, please let me go for our family has a sacrifice in the city. My brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. So that was the story. That was the excuse. That was the lie that they had agreed on. And, uh, of course, it doesn't hold water. Saul gets angry uh, because his first priority would have been to the king. And, and there is and the idea that David's brother would command him to be at a feast for new moons rather than be where he's supposed to be in the king's presence, is, is kind of far-fetched. And so uh, Saul doesn't take it at all. He, he's, he's not a dummy, whatever you want to say about Saul. Then Saul's anger was aroused against John, and he said, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, I do, not know, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your father, mother's nakedness? And so we find the expectation was is that the new moon was a significant event. Significant event that it's not just a single meal, uh, but the expectation was that you're going to be here for maybe the next day as well. Now remember, if our understanding of the new moon in relation to the Sabbaths are correct, then they just had a Sabbath prior to the new moon. Right? Because you go new moon and then you go Sabbath. is seven days, another seven days, another seven days, another seven days. You're at 28 days. The lunar cycle is about 29 point something days. So they either had a Sabbath one day earlier or the very day before. So they're going from Sabbath to Sabbath. And so the likelihood of David traveling on a Sabbath was very remote. And so uh, David doesn't show up for the new moon feast, nor the next day. And so the beginning of each month, now, is there a, a 
Jewish holiday on the new moon? Yes. One time a year. There's one that lands on the new moon, and we're going to talk about that when we get to that. Uh, but uh, there's no indication that that is this new moon. It's just this is a new moon, and so we should be there. And we should be there for that feast that is going to be held there. And so the celebration of new moons and Sabbaths is something that is related throughout Scripture. It talks about it in many of the prophetic writings, talking about the new moons and Sabbaths. And uh, it is recorded for us historically in Nehemiah that they restored the new moons and Sabbaths. And so these are tied together. You cannot study Sabbaths without really understanding the new moons because they're going to initiate that process. But don't think the new moon is just a calendar event. It is a religious event. And so when we talk about there being five Sabbaths every month, that is five worship periods. And yes, two of them are back to back. And they are usually connected with this feast. And so even to this day, uh, when an Orthodox Jew sit down on the Sabbath meal, that is going to be to us a Friday night meal. They're, after sunset, they're going to have that. And that is truly a worship period. And many of them will, after that meal, go to a temple. They'll go to a service. Uh, sometimes the next day during, during Shabbat, they'll do that um, in the morning and, and things like that. And so they have that 24 hours from sunset to sunset, approximately, of worship. And so the new moon settles in there as a key component of worship. And this is one of the historical accounts that shows just how important it is. The only reason you miss this is if you're unclean. And that's why they give you the follow-up. And the follow-up is the second day. Well, if he's unclean, we'll, we'll extend it. And now here we are the next day, and he should be there in his seat. And so now it's something more. He's not just unclean. Because he, he should have resolved that within 24 hours. Remember, you're unclean till sunset on many of those. So if he did something, it wouldn't, shouldn't have lasted 24 hours, whatever he made him unclean one day. And so, and remember, they did the same thing with Passover, that if you were unclean on the first Passover, there's a makeup Passover the next month, right? You guys know that or not? Don't know that. So there's a makeup Passover one month later on the 14th of the second month, that is your Passover if you were unclean. So if you had to bury a family member uh, during somehow the day before Passover, then you couldn't participate in Passover. You were unclean. So then you could come a month later, and there was a second Passover held for those that were unclean the first Passover. We'll be studying that when we get into that. But the idea that David's unclean tells you what we're dealing with here with new moons. We're not just dealing with calendar. We're dealing with worship. And that brings us into our idea of our worship. Now, I talked a little bit about this last week, and I want to develop this more fully uh, of why we worship not on the Sabbath. And so uh, we come to the New Testament, we find the Sabbaths, and we have a struggle now. Once we get in the New Testament, now we have a Roman calendar involved, right? So we have the Julian calendar, not the calendar you use. It's a different calendar, a little bit. Uh, and you have a Roman calendar involved called the Julian calendar. And now we have to determine, is Israel meeting on the true Sabbath, which is seven days from the new moon, 14 days, 21 days, 28 days from each new moon? Or is it set in the week to one day per week? Now, we want to be real honest about this. Um, first of all, we don't want to become pharisaical. And what were the Pharisees really good at? They're really good about being technically correct and spiritually wrong, correct? That's what they were good at. They could really be technically correct but spiritually off. And I find a lot of people are like that today. They, they study the scriptures and they come up with something like this. Well, the, the Sabbath, the, like what we talked about last week. And now they make that the whole center point of all of their worship. It's like the Seventh-day Adventists where they make the Sabbath the whole center point of defining who they are as a, as a body of saints, as a body of, of doctrine, we'll put it like that. That they teach that, and that's the center point. Anyone that doesn't agree with them is outside of them. And it's easy to make that and forget that the spirit of the Sabbath laws was what? 
Six days shall you labor and do all your work, and the seventh day you will rest. That's the spirit of it. So they do not have to be using the Old Testament Sabbath to get when we get in the New Testament. So it is possible because of the period of exile, because of the period under the Greek and Roman rule, that by the time of Jesus' day, they were not keeping the Old Testament Sabbath, but they were keeping much more akin to the Sabbath that is kept today, which is the seventh day of the Roman week. It is very feasible that that is the case, um, but it's not necessarily the case, as we talked about last week. We don't have a lot of information on that, of what the Jewish community was doing during that time frame. But it is certain that when they talk about the first day of the week, that they are using the Roman calendar. Of course, we have the gospel writers telling us that Jesus Christ rose the first day of the week. We just got done with uh, our celebration of the Lord's resurrection some weeks ago. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke and see uh, the account there. And Luke 24, verse 1. Well, let's read the last verse of Luke 23. It says, um, no, we're going to back up a little bit. Let's go to 54. Verse 54 of Luke 23, it says, That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women had come with him from Galilee, followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now on the first of the week, very or first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the tomb, the stone rolled away from the tomb. So we know that the Lord rose on the first day of the week. And we're making, because this is Luke, I picked out Luke because he is our non-Jewish author, right? Matthew, Jewish person, Mark, Jewish person, John, Jewish person. Uh, but Luke, we don't have an indication that he's a Jewish person. And so he's writing it to Theophilus, a Greek friend of God, uh, and he is giving this account and very much in, in Roman terms. And so we make the understanding that we're dealing with the first day of the Roman calendar, which is the Lord's Day. We call it that, and, and it's been called that since this day. This is the defining time. And we're going to talk about why our calendars are off by 33 years because of this event. This is the event that, that, that our clocks and calendars should be set to. It is that impacting. It is, it is the impacting event of all of history. Prior to that, the impacting event of all of history was God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. Right? That is the pinnacle event followed very closely with the redemption, the exodus, the redemption of Israel out of Egypt. That would be the, so Passover becomes a highlight, um, and, and Passover, as we said, by the new moon, always lands on a Sabbath day of rest as well. The 14th will always be that, following the new moon. And so we find this, uh, do we have a right to abandon the Sabbath for the first day of the week? And you might say, well, it's very evident that this does it. Well, it's not very evident. If it was evident, there wouldn't be a Seventh-day Adventist church. There wouldn't be a lot of disagreement theologically. And, and I have a lot, you can't believe how many times I've had to address this with people both stateside and in other countries who are being confronted by Judaizers who say, if you don't worship on the Sabbath, you're worshiping the false gods of the Romans. Okay, this is a very real thing, and if you're not exposed to it, you're, you should just be consider yourself blessed that you're protected in this wonderful place, and it's wrong of us to try to keep you here. But, <laughs> that's from a movie, I shouldn't have used that. Uh, that you're guarded here. But it is a very debated issue right now, and it shouldn't be. And we don't just have a historical account of Christ's resurrection on the first day of the week. We need to understand the theological significance of it. Why did we move from the Sabbath worship to uh, the Lord's Day worship? And when we recognize that this is the 
resurrection of Jesus Christ we're talking about. That it was the pinnacle event of history. And yes, it outshines creation itself. What is your proof of that? That it is higher than creation. And we're going to get to that in a minute. I just want to handle one other historical validation to this argument, and that is in Corinthians. Paul is talking about gathering an offering together for the saints in Jerusalem, and he gives them the instruction that on the first day of the week when you meet together, that you are to uh, bring your gifts together. Let me see if I can put my finger in verse six, chapter 16 in 1 Corinthians. It says, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the church in Galatians, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. When I come, when, whomever you approve with your letters, I will send to bear your gift. But if it is fitting I, that I go also, they will go with me. So the idea here is on the first day of the week that you're going to set that aside so that and you're going to make a collection among yourselves then, so the collection is already done, so that when I arrive, there doesn't have to be a collection. It's already been collected, because the first day of the week, when it, and the indication here isn't this isn't a private thing. Some people say, well, that just means that you get paid the first day of the week, and so you put that in your, and you set it aside. And, but no, he says that there should be no collection, which means that they're collecting this among themselves. These are all plural verbs, uh, plural group, this is you, plural, not you individually, gather this together on the first day of the week. And so the indication is that they were meeting the first day of the week to correlate with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that was uh, already becoming the day of worship. Now, certainly, as Paul is traveling in his missionary journeys, he is spending every Sabbath at the synagogue because they're still Jews. They're not following Jesus. And Christendom hadn't penetrated the Roman Empire extensively. It was in the process of penetrating it. And so this transition period from meeting on the Sabbath to meeting on the first day of the week, I think is very evident by just Paul leaving the synagogue to teach Gentiles who wanted to hear the good news. And so they would hear it outside the window on the Sabbath and then say, come teach us also. And that ended up being the first day of the week, which suited Paul, right? Because that's when Jesus resurrected. Similarly on Mars Hill. Uh, what was the key point of his, of his sermon there? Or this, really, it wasn't a sermon. It was really an engagement. Was the resurrection. It was the, it was the tipping point. Either people were going to reject him or accept him based upon the resurrection. First day of the week. Now, how can I demonstrate to you definitively that we should that that the first day of the week supplanted the Sabbath as the seventh day of rest? That is, six days you labor and do all your work, one day you should rest. That's the principle. And so whether you're in the Roman calendar or the Jewish calendar built on the new moons, uh, the principle is there. And by the way, the principle was there before the law. Correct? The principle was there before Moses gave the law. So the, the concept of the Sabbath was there all the way from creation. And so the law put it in conjunction with the new moon, but, uh, and, and we talked about whether the new moon was a what we call a new moon or was it was a full moon, and it makes more sense if it's a full moon. Uh, but again, that's more of something we can just talk about than we have to settle any theology on. Uh, I think it makes more sense. But we come to understanding the principle, and we say, well, that's still something that we should be applying. That principle is still honoring the creation, but it's recognizing a new creation, something new that has happened. And do we have any of that recorded for us in God's word, a directive saying you should not worship on the Sabbath, you should worship on the first day of the week? Do we have a directive? Not necessarily, but we do have two principles I want to talk about. Number one 
is that Jesus Christ says, I have come to fulfill the law. And so we, are, we have lots of passages that talk about our relationship to the law. The law was a schoolmaster to teach us. What was it teaching us? It was teaching us the principles of righteousness. And certainly the, the standards of God are higher than the law. And so this is what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. You're sitting there and you're nitpicking over the law and ignoring the spirit behind it. You're violating the spirit of the law. And you actually are breaking the law by trying to keep the law to this nitpicky little point. And so we can do that with the Sabbath too. And I only use that argument about the new moon in relation to the Sabbath when I'm dealing with people who are legalistically trying to say you should worship on Saturday. And I was like, no, you should worship a different day of the week. If you want to be nitpicky about it, let's get nitpicky. And I can destroy your argument that you should worship on Saturday in the Roman calendar. It's obviously not a biblical concept. And so, um, but when I present what I believe, what we hold to, what we believe the scripture teaches is that there is a spirit of the Sabbath, that is six days you should labor, do do all your work, and then the seventh you should rest. Now, if you're already resting on the wrong day, then, it, then it's okay if we rest on a different day. But I don't think we're resting on the wrong day. And we're going to talk about, a little bit about the calendar shift as well from Julian to Gregorian. Uh, I don't know if I'll get to it tonight, but we'll see. So we have the historical argument. We have this concept, but key, the, the key component is the theological difference. Let's go to Revelation to get this. Uh, is there a directive telling us to change? No, but we know the law has fulfilled its purpose. Correct? The law has fulfilled its purpose. In Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. We are no longer under law, but under grace. We have the book of Galatians in our Bible. We have the teaching of God's word. So we come to Revelation chapter 4. And it is the only place I can find in God's word where we have a very clear transition from before Christ's sacrifice to after Christ's sacrifice. And it's not on earthly worship, but it's on heavenly worship. Okay? And I believe this is the two chapters, four and five, that that definitively declare to us that worship must change built upon the work of Jesus Christ, that we are going to transition... And it's not an abandonment of, of the Sabbath. It is the transition of the Sabbath to a different day of the week to acknowledge that something greater than creation has happened. So here we are in chapter 4, and, uh, and John gets to go up to heaven, and he arrives in heaven in verse 2. Uh, he describes what he sees there, and the, he sees the sea of glass like crystal, and I would love to talk about that in relationship to the earth, um, that the floor of heaven is the ceiling of earth. You ever think about that? The floor of heaven is the ceiling of earth. So it describes what the floor of heaven is, which is also the same description for the ceiling of earth. A sea, of a glassy sea. Okay, And the Bible in Genesis tells us what's above the air, and that is the firmament. And beyond that is, gla- is, is, is water. In the midst of the throne and around the throne, it says in verse 6, uh, four living creatures. He describes living creatures. But we want to go to what, they, what they're doing. This is their worship in heaven. In verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, are full of eyes around within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We immediately identify this as exactly what Isaiah heard and saw. We very, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, we see that. And whenever that is sung, uh, the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, and here is their statement, the 24 elders, whoever they are, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. What is the focus point of worship in heaven in chapter 4? It is creation. 
And that's why I say you're looking backwards in time, not forward. You're back to Isaiah's day. You're not looking in the time after Christ because worship is all about you have created the, the earth. This is Sabbath worship. This is worship of the Sabbath. This is Old Testament pre-Christ worship because the greatest act of God was his creating the heavens and the earth. Correct? This is Israel's worship of the creator God, that he created it by his will it all exists. And for that reason, that's why you are worthy of glory, honor, and power. You are worthy, O Lord, of glory, honor, because you created and sustained everything, and by your will they exist and were created. So you are keeping everything, you created everything, and so that's, what, that's why we are worshiping you. You are the creator. Now, that's the end of chapter 4. And then chapter 5 happens, and John again sees some things going on, and a question is asked, who is worthy, in verse 2, to open the scroll and loose its seals? No one in heaven on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Wow, no one could read it. It's not that they couldn't see it. Obviously, John saw it. It's read it. No one could look, peer into the scroll. No one was worthy. No one in heaven was worthy. Do you notice that? Is the one on the throne who created all things worthy to open the scroll? No. Wow. There's a lot of theology right there to deal with. And I've done that enough for you guys. But uh, just in case someone is listening to this on a podcast, uh, recognize that when God says he can't do something, he can't. All right? God can set limits on himself, and if he set a requirement to open the scroll that he didn't meet, then he can't open the scroll himself. God can self-limit. He can self-contain. And so if he sets a parameter that he can't break then he can't break it because he's faithful and he's immutable so as soon as he does that so whatever parameters were on the scroll god himself was not qualified to open the scroll at that point god the the one on the throne that uh, was there the living creatures the one who created all things and this caused john to weep that no one was there and then verse five it says uh, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. So, we know that to be Jesus. Jesus has done something to qualify himself as the only one qualified to open the seals. And the only thing that Jesus has done, distinct from the Father and from the, and from the Spirit, is to die for us and to be raised from the dead. And this is where I believe we find the historical event of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension. In verse 6, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb. We don't, we're looking for a lion and we see a lamb. Right? What is the lamb? It had been newly slain. As though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits of God out of all the earth. Or into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. And so we're still distinguishing between the one sitting on the throne and the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We have these two individuals. We understand they're both, rep, they're both personages of deity. We know the Son is God, and we know that the Father is God. We also know the Spirit is God. And so here we have the divine triunity engaged here, but one of them is different than the other two. One of them is qualified because he was the lamb. And only one was the lamb. Only one became sin for us. Only one conquered sin and death through the resurrection, and that is Jesus Christ. Okay? So this is the event. So what does that do to the worship in heaven? The worship in heaven now is confronted with something I believe is, the evidence here is that it's greater than creation itself. So what happens? When Jesus takes the scroll uh, and all the authority that is, that is associated with that scroll, verse 8, huge section of verses. 
when he had taken a scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before who? The Lamb. Who would they fall down before in, in chapter 4? The one who sat on the throne. Now they're falling down before the Lamb. What has just happened? The worship shifted. Exactly. The exact two. It shifted from the one who sat on the throne to the Lamb. Now, is the one sat on the throne jealous of the, <laughs> is the father jealous of the son for obeying him and conquering sin and death? No, of course not. Okay? And so uh, the worship, though, necessarily shifts from the God, the creator, to the lamb, the redeemer. And they're falling down, the very same creatures, entities that were worshiping the Father, the one who sits on the throne, the creator, is now worshiping the redeemer. The worship has shifted person. Wow! That should just blow your mind. If there's any evidence of the deity of Christ, it is that alone. Because there's no way angels are going to worship anyone but God. But they go from worshiping the one on the throne to worshiping the Lamb. They bow down before the Lamb. They have a harp, they have bowls full of incense, the prayers of the saints, and they sing a new song. This means that we have something new transpiring in heaven. This is huge. How long had the other song been sung? Day and night without rest for how long? Since creation. <laughs> Since the created order, day and night, without interruption, this activity has been going on. Thousands of years this has been going on. And now, for the first time that we find anywhere in the scriptures, a new song is introduced in heaven. They have a very small hymn book. Right? They have one song, and now they have a new song. There's going to be a third song. So there's three songs in heaven. Uh, you're going to sing one of those three songs when you get to heaven. Okay, you get to, and we're, we're, we know which song we're going to sing because it tells us. But we have this new song. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, you are, for you are slain. You have redeemed them from their, by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and have made them kings and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. I know you have first person plural but it should be third person plural pronouns there instead of we, it should be they and them instead of us and we. Uh, they're talking about redeeming every tribe, tongue, people, and nation not redeeming the angels, the creatures, and the 24 elders. And then everyone else gathers in thousands, tens of thousands, times tens of thousands, that's like millions. In verse 12, here we go. Remember, we had all those creatures saying, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power because you create all things, and by your will they exist. Now, they say blessing and honor and glory and power. Do you see the same things? They're adding a fourth. There's the same three plus one. Now there's blessing being added to glory, honor, and power. Be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the toy for fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. And so we have a transition from worshiping just the Father to now worshiping the Lamb. And now everyone's going to worship the Lamb and the Father because they, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit jointly produced our redemption. But the focal point is the lamb. And we have a new song. The song shifts because we have something greater than creation. It doesn't say um, that it doesn't reference creation, does it? What it references is redemption. You've redeemed men by your blood. The redemption. And that you have, and so you were slain, you were redeemed, and so now we have an opportunity to worship. Now, the only argument that I've ever gotten from that that I cannot resolve <laughs> fully, and I, I want to just put it out there because I want you to acknowledge there is one hole in my argument here, and it's not big, but, and the people said, well, it says that, that he was slain, and he wasn't slain on the Lord's day, he was slain 
on the Sabbath. And my contention is that's impossible. Was Jesus slain on, a, on the Sabbath? No, he, he was in the grave three days, three nights. And so we come to this, when would Christ have arrived in heaven? While he was in the grave, did he arrive in heaven? No, it says he descended into Hades and took captivity captive. He appeared to many, and then he ascended. And so we find, is it possible that we could say that he ascended on a Sabbath day? And we'd have to go uh, to the, and, and to examine that again in Acts and the Gospels. But when we talk about his, his spiritual effect of his blood in heaven, it is victorious at the resurrection. And so, yes, I cannot say precisely that this is the first day of the week uh, that Jesus arrives in heaven, but spiritually it is valid. Would you agree with that at least, that spiritually the power of the resurrection is effectual as soon as Christ rose from the dead? And even if you say, well, it happened during the night, but that night was the first day of the week by Jewish reckoning, correct? Because it was even during the night. It was before, just before dawn, which means if the, if the day started at sunset, you were halfway through the day. And I think it was a very important reason why he rose right at the dawn, because he is the light of the world. And so this first day of the week, we see worship in heaven change. That's all I need you to acknowledge. Do you please acknowledge that once Jesus Christ raises from the dead and arrives in heaven, Worship in heaven changed. And if worship in heaven changed, then it is reasonable and in fact expectant that worship on earth should change too and it should shift. And so a shift of day to acknowledge our Lord's resurrection is not only appropriate, I would contend that it is, it is uh, to pattern ourselves after heaven. Are we still... Wanting to give honor to the idea of a Sabbath, the principle of the Sabbath. Six days you do all your work, the seventh day you rest. Yes, you should give honor to that principle. Uh, do I want to legalistically impose it on you that from sunset Saturday to sunset Sunday that you do absolutely no work? I'm not the Pharisees. We are not in the law but the principle should be applied to your life. That you should have one day out of seven set aside that you are not going to labor, that you are going to worship. To be really reflective upon it. We, we are still honoring the principle of the Sabbath, but we are shifting it to center the focus, not upon creation, but upon the new creation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why we do it. It has theological backing. It has historical backing. Uh, in, in the events of Christ, it has a traditional backing in the meeting of the church. In, in biblical era, first century Christians were meeting on that day. And, and do we have a problem with it called Sunday? Yes, of course we do. And so did the Greeks. <laughs> so they called it the Lord's Day. <laughs> they changed their vocabulary. They did that 2,000 years ago. Uh, we need to do it now. Uh, not if you speak Spanish, because like we said, Domingo is the Lord's Day. Uh, and we need to use that terminology and, and to recognize that this is, we're giving honor to God. We are bowing before the Lamb of God who raised from the dead, and that is really the conclusion of his death, burial, resurrection event. And, and the, the, the pinnacle of it. You know, I don't know what day of the week he necessarily that the ascension. Uh, we know of the death, whether it was, I had one person argue it was Wednesday, Thursday, and then we, of course, the majority were thinking it's on Friday. I still don't know how that happened. Uh, but we come to this, and we know that the first day of the week, Christ resurrected. We know that the early church met at the first day of the week to gather collection. We know these things. And so, uh, do not ever let someone challenge you with the Old Testament to say, well, you're worshiping wrong, therefore everything you're teaching is wrong, because it is very plain that in heaven 
the work of Christ supplanted creation as the greatest work of God. Not of just the Son, but of God, the triune God. This is his greatest work. Does that mean creation isn't important? Well, it's the second greatest work of God. So, no, it's not, it's not unimportant. Um, and maybe it's kind of good that we have weekends because we have the privilege of working not six days but five in our employment normally, and that has been infringed upon excessively in our society I re- and just in the last 40 years. You understand that. It's only been, you young people don't understand that. When I was a child, a young person, you couldn't get gasoline on the Lord's Day. Gasoline stations were closed. Everything was closed. There were very few restaurants even open uh, and on the Lord's Day. I, I don't know of anything that was open but churches when I was a child. 50 years ago. And that's how much it has changed now. That uh, And the idea of working, and, and I have my kids watch Chariots of Fire, and we love that movie, and, and what was the testimony of, of the runner, Eric Little? I will not run on the Lord's Day. I will not do it. And because that was the first Olympics that they decided to have some trials, some of their early uh, heats on the Lord's Day. It was never done before that. And so this is a recent phenomenon where we have completely abandoned the concept that you should have a day set aside as a society for worship and rest. And uh, we've enjoyed in this country historically two days of rest, really. Because of our Judeo-Christian background, we do that. Now, if we were going to be Judeo-Christian Muslim, then we'd get a three-day weekend. Because you have to get every Friday off for the Muslims, every Saturday for the Jews, and every Sunday for the Christians. How many of you for that? Four-day work week? Um, But the principle is there, and I just want to invoke that, that while I challenge the Sabbath isn't Saturday, uh, I'm really not going against the principle of the Sabbath, but I want you to think about God has designed his creation for one day out of seven to rest, even for your animals. Uh, and we, we have anecdotal evidence all through history of the great benefits it is to us to work six days and rest a seventh. And the only ones I could find anywhere in Scripture that were exempt from that were the priests. And if you think pastors are the priests uh, in their priestly service, they were only exempt from that in their priestly service. The Levites couldn't go out and work on the Sabbath. No. Only the priests in their priestly service were to serve every day. And... and uh, but even in that sense, I, I work really hard not to work outside of my priestly service on the Lord's Day. And I am transitioning my mind, honestly, to starting that at sunset of the Lord's Day instead of the morning of the Lord's Day. Now, do my goats still need milk? Do the animals still need fed? Of course they do. But I don't do it, usually. I put that on others. Yeah, I'll let somebody else get in trouble with God. No. Uh, (laughs) It's that whole idea that I want to focus on ministry. But what would happen if we started saying, you know, uh, if sunset, I'm going to set myself aside. I'm going to sanctify the day from sunset. Have a meal after the sun goes down, and we're going to say what we call Saturday night is a worshipful time, a worshipful meal together as a family. And then move that in, and, and now you can't believe the impact that has on your, on your Lord's Day morning of coming into worship because you're not engaged in entertainment, you're not engaged in all this other stuff, you're, you're not watching football, you're, you're 
thinking this is my day of rest and worship. I'm not going to work into the night late on Saturday night. And, and I made a commitment, and I've been trying to fulfill that commitment, that even when we go to the Bahamas, that I'm going to get back by sunset. Because it's not, it's not right for me to come and minister to you fatigued. And if I work in and I'm getting in late at night on Saturday night and I show up fatigued, um, I'm robbing God. I'm robbing you too. But now that's what the commitment I've made. It's not just because I'm old and I can't see at night and I don't want to drive at night anymore. <laughs> There's that component. But that wasn't what drove this. It was I was just committed. I'm going to be home by sunset. I'm going to strive as much as I can to be home by sunset and be rested and hopefully the, the goats are milked and every, all the chores are done before sunset and now we can start to transition to the concept of worship and rest uh, from then. Now I'm going to throw it back on you. How much more alert are you going to be if that's your Saturday night? Yeah, you're going to be ready, alert. You, if you say, I, I, I want to prepare myself for worship from sunset. And I tell people, I've been telling people all my ministry life is that your worship on the Lord's Day is, is 20%, 10% what I do, uh, and it is probably 80% what you do from Saturday night to Sunday morning. Because if you're up late Saturday night being entertained and, and hanging out, doing all these things, partying, whatever that is, and not resting in worship, if you're rested and you show up here, uh, you're going to get a whole lot more out of worship if you do that. So the principle is still there. Six days, do all your work. Seventh day, rest. Now what does that mean about sunset on the Lord's Day? Well, we probably should try to get our services in earlier <laughs> to get them in before the sun sets. Uh, but frankly, the Sunday night service is... is because we had a Western concept of a day, and we want to close out the day in worship. Well, if you really want to close out the Hebraic day in worship, you're going to do it the last hour before sunset. And then you can start thinking about work. Because at sunset, it's now Monday. You start thinking about work. But don't rob God. Uh, and really, you're just damaging yourself. Like I said, there's plenty of evidence anecdotally, even from the Oregon Trail. Uh, I don't know if you've read the stories about the men, people on the Oregon Trail that said, we're going to rest every seventh day. And how well they did compared to the people that said, we're going to just keep traveling, keep going, keep going, keep going to beat the frost. And they didn't. They, they were the ones that got sick. Those are the ones that animals went lame. And, and the ones that honored the Seventh-day Principle, uh, they did really well, by and large. And they ended up actually getting to Oregon faster because they were healthier. They didn't have to stop for three weeks to rest. How important is this to God? Well, if you don't do the Sabbaths, does God remember? Does he keep count? He did for Israel, didn't he? There's another Sabbath we're going to talk about, uh, and that is the the sabbatical year, the seventh year rest for the land. Did God keep track of those? He knew exactly how many Israel had missed, 70 of them. Why is that important? How did God decide how long Israel was going to go into captivity? A year for every Sabbath year they skipped. So they went into captivity for 70 years because they skipped 70 sabbatical years. That, that's in God's word. I didn't make that up. We'll look at it when we get to that. So God keeps track of that. And I believe that principle is still invoked. Uh, is it legalistically charged? No. But if our desire is to glorify God and truly worship him and give glory, honor, praise, and blessing... If you want to bless the Lord, oh my soul, then I would suggest following that principle and shift it to the Lord's Resurrection Day, 
call it the Lord's Day, start it at sunset, put yourself in a frame of reference for worship, and then let it uh, just blossom into the day uh, of our corporate worship as, as a church body. Am I going to legally impose this? No, I've taught very clearly a lot of things that I don't legally impose, right? I've taught you very clearly that our women should have their heads covered. Some of you do, some of you don't. I'm not going to impose that. I, I taught very carefully women, men should have short hair. Uh, do I legally impose that? No. I'm not sure that I can define it for you exactly. And, uh, and, and then there's that Samson thing that's a problem. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we, if we really want to excel and we really want to do well, I want to do the best. I want to worship the best then follow the directives of Scripture. And our society has lost track of that in your generation. Okay? Women all wore hats to church when we were children, when I was a child. They did. Um, you don't wear hats because, not the Bible abandoned that, it's because women's liberation abandoned the concept of, being, of women being under authority. That's all it represents. I'm under authority. And, um, and so similarly with this, I'm not going to invoke this and say, you better, I'm not going to call you at sunset and say, are you resting? No. Maybe. <laughs> quit, quit. And just say, that's enough. And, and you're going to be healthier, you're going to be happier, I believe God will bless you. Blessing, glory, honor, and power uh, is what we are surrendering to God. And we do that by bowing down to him. And I, I think the principle of six out of seven is precious. Six days out of seven you work, one day, let's just say, I'm going to rest. And I know you guys have to go to work five or six days and that but you have all the nights <laughs> do you work around the house um, every Jewish person has a job and somehow from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday they're able to not labor with their hands they're able not to work um, do they still prepare meals yes they still take care of their animals because animals need to eat too Certainly, and Jesus Christ defines some of that for us, uh, that we're going to do good, but uh, I don't need to be at hard labor to get caught up on the Lord's Day. I can say I'm going to worship. And so I modify some of it. I do as little as possible. Uh, I rest, and I worship, and I minister. And I just encourage you in that. Okay, that was bonus material there. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for uh, this opportunity today to gather in your name. And we don't want to uh, abandon your word. We don't want to abandon your worship. And we thank you for these evidences in your word to direct us in our worship. And Lord, uh, we know that in some circumstances and places that it may not be possible to do this, but where we have liberty and latitude, uh, that we have the privilege of, of being as biblical as possible in the, in the practice of our worship. Lord, we thank you for the, for the opportunity to do that. And Lord, we pray that we might uh, not uh, just treat it lightly or unimportant, that we might let it truly impact us, our families, our health, our mental health, our spiritual health, uh, our body health as a, as a church body, our relationships. And Lord, we know that when we neglect the principles of your word, that there is a cost, there is a price that we pay for that. And Lord, help us to uh, see the wisdom of following your principles in our lives and yet also knowing that uh, it is not legalistically enforced, but it is uh, to be uh, done as well as we can in the circumstances that we are engaged in. And we pray that you might give us grace.
toward one another, towards others, that we might uh, be patient with one another and with others, and that, but we, that we might strive to be the best in our personal and in our church uh, approach to worship. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.